but just by way of introduction, here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about being resolved to be faithful to God in an ever-changing world. Being resolved, being steadfast in your faith when everything around you is changing. And those changes at times often bring conflict between what we believe and what culture says. And we are put in a predicament. Do we compromise? Do we go with the flow here? Do we go with what culture says here? Or do we remain resolute in our faithfulness to God and His ways? I mean, this can happen in your, in your own family. You know, maybe some of you, uh, you know, not everyone in your family is, is a believer. And you get those, you know, those big family get-togethers and a particular topic of conversation comes up and get pretty heated because not everyone believes what you believe. Or in the workplace, not everyone has the same work ethic and work values as you do. Or even in social settings with your friends, especially those who don't know Jesus. And this is happening in the world on a grand scale because we are living in an ever-increasing post-Christian and post-church world. South Africa, like like Cayman, is still pretty conservative. But just to give you two examples from our our own little world, uh, we've noticed that there's an increasing trend to celebrate children's parties on a Sunday. Uh, Like Brett said, we've got two little girls, Paige and Emma, six and four. They have a way better social life than we do. Uh, And so we get invited to these these kids' parties that are, are often on a Sunday. And this puts us in a predicament because we love the Lord's church. We want to serve the Lord's church. And we want our kids to love the Lord's church and serve the Lord's church. But at the same time, we want to be on mission to our friends who don't know Jesus. And we want our girls to grow up being on mission to their friends who don't know Jesus. And so there's this push and this pull within us. My wife also, secondly, does this crazy thing called open water swimming. Uh, kind of where you, you swim out to the middle of the ocean to where the sharks are, and then you swim back as fast as you can before they get you. Um, <laughs> And I must say, she's doing very well because she's still here with us, which I'm really grateful for. Um, But now, these races are often held on a Sunday back home. And so we thought, well, there's no way she's ever going to participate in one unless we take a Sunday off. And so we duly did that, went down to the beach. It was a beautiful day in Port Elizabeth. And uh, we got down, and half the congregation was there. And so I went up to them. I said, hey, shouldn't you guys be in church? And they said to me, well, shouldn't you be preaching? And so it kind of got a little bit awkward, so we just ignored each other for the day. But, and please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not talking about a legalistic religious mindset here. But, you know, you can't do this, you can do that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just simply a, an observation that there's been a shift in culture. That uh, Sunday that was traditionally set aside for, for family and for rest and for, for going to church is no more because we're living in this ever-increasing post-Christian, post-church world. I mean, even if you didn't go to church, it was the accepted norm. Hey, that's what people do. They go to church on a Sunday. So in a world that is, is ever-changing... The question this morning is how do we remain steadfast in our faith in God? See, here's what I want us to do. I want us to briefly have a look at the story of Daniel and his, his three friends. Uh, you might remember the story, the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar, they, they invade Jerusalem, they besiege Jerusalem, they begin to loot Jerusalem, even, even the temple. And on top of that, they take with them the very best that Judah had to offer. 
the most noble, the most skillful, the most intelligent, and they take them back to Babylon. And so this included Daniel and his three friends, and scholars say that they were probably in their teenage years, probably around 15 years of age. And so taken to a foreign land and a foreign culture to eventually serve King Nebuchadnezzar himself. And so you talk about a completely different world here. So kidnapped to learn and serve in a very foreign culture, a very foreign world, very foreign to what they had uh, grown up in, and very uh, much in contrast to their faith. And so how were they to remain resolute in their faith towards God? Because any form of disobedience to King Nebuchadnezzar would be the end of you. And you might remember from the story, he was quite creative in how he offed you, either in the lion's den or in a a blazing sauna or fiery furnace. And so the question for us is, how do we remain ever immovably resolved in our faith in a changing world, in this post-Christian, post-church world? Does our faith dissolve in certain situations that we find ourselves in? Or does it remain resolved? And so we're going to have a look at Daniel and see how his three friends remain resolved to be faithful in this very foreign context. So here's what we're going to see. It's kind of like the the thesis statement. We're going to see God's sovereign favor, God's sovereign favor resting on those who remain resolved to be faithful to him. So here we go. You can uh, open your, your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 to 21. I'm not going to read the whole text in, in one go. We kind of will work our way through it. Um, but you want to go ahead and you can find that. We'll also put it up on screen for you. I'll talk our way through it. So here we go. Point number one goes like this. And don't be ashamed to look at the contents page to find the book of Daniel. Sometimes I have to do that. But here we go. To be resolutely faithful to God means, number one, to be resolved about God's ways. In other words, to stand firm no matter how good your circumstances are or how bad your circumstances are. We remain steadfast in our faithfulness to God. We will not be tossed to and fro by every whim of culture that's in culture and by false doctrines. Rather, what I'm proposing in this first point is that we are to be people of the book and that we are to apply God's word in every situation that we find ourselves in. So just to give you a bit of context, Daniel and his friends now find themselves in this very foreign land, very foreign culture where they, which they are to learn and to assimilate. So they've been put in this this three-year training program or this three-year educational program where they are to learn everything about Babylon, eat Babylonian food, learn Babylonian culture. In other words, become Babylonian. Forget everything that you've known your whole life and your faith, you're to become Babylonian. But they are men of faithful resolve. Have a look at verse 8 with me. It says this, but... Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. 
And there are a couple of reasons for this. The Babylonians would have eaten ceremoniously unclean food like pork. And, and we need to remember that Daniel and his friends were, were under the old covenant. And according to Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, Jews were not allowed to eat ceremoniously unclean food. And so this was a, a resolute stand to be faithful to God's ways, to God's laws under the old covenant. Another reason is that this food and this, this, this wine was probably first offered to the Babylonian idols and then brought to them. And so uh, Daniel and his friends thought this, that by eating and drinking it, it would open up a door to further compromise of God's ways and, and usher in all sorts of other temptations. And so it was a way of fighting off complete surrender to the Babylonian culture, which was the goal of King Nebuchadnezzar for all of his captors. He'd want to indoctrinate them into Babylonian ways. And so this stand was simply their way of demonstrating their faith, demonstrating their identity as the people of God and remaining faithful to God. And on top of that, demonstrating their complete dependence on God, trusting Him, because like I said, any form of disobedience to the king would result in their death. So I thought, okay, well, let's just pause there. How would this play out for us today? Because we're not exactly uh, you know, under any dietary food laws. We're under the new covenant, no longer under these ceremonial old covenant laws. I mean, we clearly see this in Acts 10 uh, verse 13 when, when Peter is in Joppa and he's on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house and he has this dream or this vision of all of these animals coming down and, and, and God says to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, no, no, aren't these unclean? And, and God says, no, don't call what I've called clean, unclean, clean. And so we're not under those, those old covenant laws, but if we're honest with ourselves, we do find ourselves in situations almost on a daily basis where we're faced with the choice, do we compromise on God's ways or do we remain resolved to be faithful to Him? Um, I had a friend who uh, worked for a pretty big advertising agency back in Johannesburg, and they had some some pretty big prominent clients come on board and he was tasked with the job of, of leading their ad campaign and, and also just looking after the clients, making sure the clients were happy in all aspects. And invariably this involved a local strip club. And so my friend was immediately put in a very awkward position. He, you know, he wanting to do a good job for his boss, wanting to do a good job for the clients, but at the same time wanting to uphold his Christian beliefs. And so being a Christian of resolve, he refused. And I remember him telling me, he said that people knew that he was a Christian, but he said, if you'd just simply gone with it, no one would have batted an eyelid. Because it's just what you do. It's just part of the culture. But because of his resolve to be faithful to God, he was promptly taken off the account and I remember asking him, I said, well, how did you feel about that? And he said, well, my CV would have looked a lot more impressive with these clients on it. But at the end of the day, God's glory and my integrity as a Christian was more important. And so we might be thinking, okay, well, well good for your friend, Jason. But you know, at the end of the day, it's a very clear situation in terms of what to do. Because the Bible clearly tells us, you know, don't look at a woman lustfully. And so... There are many things in our culture that the Bible doesn't really speak clearly into or clearly about. 
Because culture is such a broad, all-encompassing term, isn't it? Culture refers to a, a set of beliefs or a set of values or a set of assumptions that guide people's behavior or guide a particular group of people's behavior. You, know, you look at a particular group, why do they celebrate that? Or why do they do those things like that? Because they have a set of assumptions, a set of values, a set of beliefs that almost dictate their lives to them. King Nebuchadnezzar, he, he invades Jerusalem, he besieges Jerusalem, he, he loots the temple and takes some of the artifacts for himself, or he puts them in his own temples. And the Jews think, well, this is an absolute abomination, but not according to him. He's living according to his culture, his set of beliefs and values. And then, like I said, he then takes the best of the best that Judah had to offer to assimilate them into Babylonian culture, to mix them into Babylonian culture. And this is essentially what culture does. It's constantly changing. It's constantly evolving. It's constantly being influenced upon. And if that's the case, therefore value systems are always changing. Beliefs are always changing. And if those are always changing, then people's behaviors are always changing. What was not tolerated a few years ago now all of a sudden is, is tolerated. For those of you who are old enough, uh, think about the difference between the, the TV series of the 80s compared to the TV series today. Back then, there was no swearing, there were only heterosexual relationships, and now all of a sudden you've got all sorts of language and all sorts of sexual preferences are lauded or even championed on our TV screens. And so the question for us is, how do we engage with culture? Listen, it's, it's not a question of if we should engage with culture. We're in the culture. Janine and I are in a South African culture. We're in a Port Elizabeth culture. Our family has a culture. Our workplace has a culture. You're in a Cayman culture. Your workplace has a culture. Your friends have a culture. So how do we remain resolved to be faithful to God in this culture, in the places and the spaces that we find ourselves? Well, there are two extreme approaches that I disagree with. We'll put them on screen, two big words. You can use them in a conversation this week. You'll look pretty intelligent. First one goes like this. The first one is syncretism. Syncretism is when you begin to blend into your faith what you believe, uh, different thoughts and values from other religions or different values and, and mindsets from different cultures. And one of the major offshoots of this in Christianity is liberalism. Liberal churches place a higher authority on culture than they do the Bible. In fact, the Bible is subjected to culture, or the, or the Bible is interpreted through the lens of the predominant culture, and therefore you can make the Bible pretty much say whatever you want it to say. The second one is separatism, a second extreme reaction to culture, which essentially says as, as Christians we should remove ourselves from culture. Do not be engaged with culture. In other words, find a bat cave, hunker down and pray and wait for Jesus to come back and fetch you type of mentality. And the result of this is that we become very narrow-minded. We become more fundamentalistic. We become more fear-based. We become more rule-based. We become more control-based. And our witness for Jesus and the gospel is greatly hindered in the culture that we find ourselves 
Janine told me this crazy story when she was in primary school. Uh, she went to a Christian primary school, and a guest speaker came along, and uh, she told all the girls that they were not allowed to wear necklaces with uh, a dolphin emblem on the end, because they would open themselves up to demonic activity. And I'm thinking, how? Like, the dolphin is like the butterfly of the ocean. It's amazing. It's, it's wonderful. And so there seems to be within church world, in Christian world, this the separatist group who kind of call the fact that there's a devil under every bush. And so I don't recommend syncretism. I don't recommend separatism. I think Daniel and his friends here give us a pretty good strategy on how to be resolved for God in a very foreign culture. So here's what they do. They get kidnapped to Babylon, but they don't reject everything about the Babylonian culture. They accept the king's accommodation. They accept the king's educational program, but they reject the food and the wine because they see that as a direct compromise of their faith and God's ways, God's law. And so there seems to be a clear thought-out strategy or prayerful thought-out strategy here. And, And to make it simple for us, we can think of it in terms of three R's. Receive, reject, and redeem. So I was thinking for us worldwide today, we, we live in a very technological culture. And there are things about this technological culture that we can receive, that we are to reject, and that we can redeem. For instance, the internet is not a Christian internet, but there are many things that we can simply receive regarding it. We can receive the, and send good information. Like, like this past week, Janine and I were sending the girls photographs and voice notes of what we were doing, and they were doing the same. And so we can receive an, uh, good information. We can download good sermons. We can download good music. And there's things that we can simply receive about the internet. Like I said, Daniel benefited from this educational program and the accommodation. But then there are many things that we are to reject. Because there's no such thing as Christian pornography. We are to reject it outright. Do not be enticed by it. God is, is clear in his, in his word that we are not to look at a woman lustfully or a man lustfully for that matter. And then there are things to redeem. For instance, social media can be a, a great weapon that can really hurt someone but at the same time, a great way to encourage someone to spread the gospel. It's a a platform in our culture that can be used to to redeem things for God's glory. So here's a question you can ask yourself in terms of your social media or, or the person that you might follow on social media. Whose glory is on display on your Facebook account, your Twitter account, or your Instagram account? or the person to whom or whom you are following. Our girls, um, we, have, we have Netflix back home, and our girls like to watch My Little Pony, uh, but sometimes those little ponies can get really nasty with each other. And so uh, every now and again, we have to hit the pause button, and we, and we have to ask, well, you know, what should Twilight Sparkle, what should she have done in this situation? Or why was Applejack so cross with Rainbow Dash? And we kind of have a good redemptive talk about it. But then sometimes we just have to, we just have to reject it. We have to switch it off. We have to change the program because there's absolutely nothing to redeem. So here's the thing. 
What is the thing that is going to sharpen these three R's? Because when you leave here or when you wake up tomorrow morning and it's Monday and you go out into the culture, you go out into the places and the spaces where God has put you, how are you going to know what to receive, what to reject, and what to redeem? So the thing that is going to sharpen those three R's of yours is your time in this, is your time in God's Word. The more time we are in this book, it begins to renew our minds. It begins to transform our minds so that when we do go out into culture, we will be able to discern better and better what to receive, what to reject, what we can redeem for His glory. Put some Bible underneath that very quickly. Romans 12 verse 2 says this. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't be a syncretist. Don't just swallow everything that there is in the world and be conformed to it. Then he says, but, but also don't be a separatist. Here he goes, rather do this. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So as your mind is being renewed according to God's revealed will here, you will be able to discern what his will is in the particular situations that you find yourself in. And his will, by the way, he says here, is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, so back to our story. What happens after Daniel and his friend, uh, they, they stand their ground, they reject the food, they reject the wine, and so in rejecting that, they actually bring some sort of redemption to their situation. Have a look at what the eunuch does in verse 9. It says, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, Nebuchadnezzar, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So there was kind of a lot of these guys in this educational program. So he says, so you would endanger my head with the king? So basically he's saying, listen, Dan, I really like you, but listen, if I stop giving you this food, which is by decree of the king, and you start looking worse than the rest of the guys, it's my head on the block. So Daniel comes up with a plan. Look at verse 11. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's, those are their Babylonian names. He says this. Here's, here's his plan, verse 12. Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. Here's the result, verse 15. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So he comes up with this masterful plan and says, listen, compare us after 10 days. We're going to eat vegetables and water, and if we look worse than the rest of the guys, then hey, do what you guys do in Babylon, chop our heads of lions, then you name it. But if we look better, we want to live and eat according to our faith. And so he brings some redemption to their situation. 
So point number one, be resolved to stand on God's ways found in his word so that we know how to respond to the culture and the places and the spaces that we find ourselves in. Finally, last point goes like this. It's, it's kind of like the grounds for Daniel's resolve because maybe you're asking the question, well, how could Daniel be so confident? How could he be so stubborn in his faith? Because under his resolve to be faithful is his resolve, point number two, to rest in the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty of God, I've explained it simply in my terms. God is large and in charge. God has all authority. God has all power. God has all wisdom over all things all of the time. And you and I as Christians, we get to rest in that. But that might not be as easy as it sounds because let me remind you as to how the story of Daniel starts. Chapter one, verse one says this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now the question we're asking, well, how, how come he was successful? Verse two tells us. And the Lord gave. We're gonna see that term a lot. The Lord gave. The Lord is in charge. He determines what he gives, what he takes. He's large and in charge. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. So Nebuchadnezzar comes and he attacks Jerusalem and he succeeds only because God allows him to succeed. So here's a big controversial statement for you. Everything that happens only happens by the sovereign hand of God, both good things and bad things. Let's put some Bible under that very quickly. Have a look at this. Proverbs 16, verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose. Everything, everything in this world, and therefore everything that happens in this world has a purpose that has been put there by God. Surely not evil, right? Comma, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Sunrise, do you have space for that in your theology of God? Another way of saying is that, that God allows certain things to pass through his sovereign hands, both good things and bad things, to affect us. Which also means that God in his sovereignty also withholds certain things from our lives, both good things and bad things. That's what it means to be sovereign over all things. Now for some of you, that's very, very tough to hear. And I, I don't want to be insensitive to your situation. I don't want to be insensitive to what might have happened to you in your past. So it might be a, a really tough truth to grapple with. And there will be confusing things and tough things that will happen in our futures. And so you need to decide which is more comforting to you. A God who is not in control over the events of your life. And again, I don't want to be insensitive. I don't want to be facetious. But then don't bother praying to him because he's not in control over those events. Or number two, secondly, trust in a God who is completely sovereign, who's completely in control over the events of your life, 
And we get to trust in his character that he is a good God who is faithful to fulfill his promises to us. For instance, Romans 8.28, right? It's the great coffee mug verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not some of the things that he's in control of. No, all things, all things that happen in your life, he works together for the good. And the good here is your ultimate sanctification, your transformation into the image and likeness of Jesus. That's an amazing promise. No matter what you go through, good or bad, he is able to use it to transform you into the image and likeness of his son. He says, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now watch this. God has a plan and begins to work all things for Daniel and his friends good. Look at verse nine again. He says, and God gave, there's our term again, God, large and in charge, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So God has this sovereign ability to change even someone's disposition towards you, their heart's disposition towards you. He makes the chief of the eunuch here compassionate and favorable towards Daniel, even though if this whole test went horribly wrong, it would be the eunuch's, the end of his life. But God's sovereign plan for Daniel and his friends won't be stopped. And so Daniel can rest in his sovereign heavenly father's plan. Verse 17 says this, the story goes on. After they bring some redemption to their situation, says this, as for these four youths, God gave them, there we go again, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So, so incredible, God gives these guys incredible insight into Babylonian ways, Babylonian culture, Babylonian literature, and on top of that, Daniel gets divine discernment in all spiritual matters, which comes in handy later in the story when he begins to interpret the king's dreams. And so what was the result? This is the question I'm going to ask now. What is the result of the sovereign intervention? Look from verse 18. It says, at the end of the time, that's the end of this three-year training period, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. That's everyone, not just Daniel and his three friends, all of these guys who've been on this training program. Verse 19, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, here's the result, they stood before the king. They became the king's go-to guys. They became the king's consultants. Verse 20, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So sunrise, can you see that by receiving certain things of the culture, rejecting certain things of the culture, redeeming certain things of the culture, while at the same time resting in God's sovereign secret plan, Daniel and his friends were able to influence the culture they found themselves in by influencing the man who had the power to change the culture, the king himself. The ESV study Bible sums it up like this. I thought this was a great sum up. It says, God placed them in a unique position. See that? It's God's sovereignty again. 
The story started off rough. I mean, they might question, God, how can you allow our, our homes to be destroyed? How can you allow us to be kidnapped to this very foreign land, this very foreign culture? But it says God placed them in a unique position, look at this, where they could be a blessing to their captors and build up the society, build up the culture in which they found themselves while at the same time enabling them to remain true to him, being resolved to him amid extraordinary pressures. Some practical points to ponder and then we're done. Number one, the place you are in is not an accident. It is by the sovereign hand of God. And yes, a little disclaimer here, there's a divine mystery between uh, our human will, our free will to make decisions. Yes, we make good decisions and we make bad decisions and there are consequences to our decisions. But at the end of the day, you are in God's sovereign plan. We see this clearly in Daniel's life. Kidnapped, taken away to this foreign culture. And so just because things might not be easy, it doesn't mean God is not in it. Don't be misled by that false theology. Number two, how can you be faithfully resolved to God in the place that you're in? And here come our three R's again. So what, what can you receive about the place that you are in? What, you, what can you gladly receive and, and work at and do with all to the glory of God? What can you redeem for God's glory in the place that you find yourself in? Who can you influence for God's glory? Whose lives can you transform with the gospel in the place that you're in? What can you reject? Or what should we be rejecting about the place that we're in? What are we compromising on? What area are we compromising on? Even if it's at great cost to yourself, but trust the Lord for repentance. Because lastly, remember, God is sovereign over all things. Rest in Him. Rest in His sovereign secret plan over your life. Because He uses all things for the good of those who love Him. So being resolutely faithful to God means being grounded on all of His ways, found in His Word, resting in his sovereign plan over you. And if we do those two things, sunrise, I'm convinced we will influence this island, we will influence this world that so desperately needs Jesus. Because Jesus himself came to a very foreign land, a very foreign culture, full of sin, full of evil, so that a bunch of sinners might no longer be rejected by their heavenly Father, but rather redeemed and received into his kingdom. Amen? I'd love to pray with you. Father, I want to pray for this incredible faith family here. I thank you so much for this community. I thank you so much for the work that you are doing, so clearly doing in all of their lives. But I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would strengthen their faith, strengthen their resolve to be that exactly, to be faithful to you, Lord, 
in all of the particular situations they might find themselves, even Monday morning, that you would strengthen them to be faithful to you, faithful to your ways, even at great cost to themselves, but knowing that they can rest, Father, that you are in charge. You are in charge no matter what happens. That our greatest joy in life is to live for your glory and to enjoy you. And so I pray this, please, for this faith family. In Jesus' name, amen.